Would you please turn with me to the book of John? We're going to be in John chapter 19. And then if you want to put your bulletin or some other marker over in Colossians 2. We're going to be looking at those two chapters today. John chapter 19 and Colossians chapter 2. When my family asked what I was preaching on this morning, I told them. And somebody said, well, isn't that more like a Good Friday sermon? And I said, yes, it is actually. But when we come up to Easter or some other holiday, in this case the week before, I pray about what God wants me to speak on. And a few weeks ago, the same thing kept coming to my mind over and over. So yes, this is more of a Good Friday passage, but we don't have a Good Friday service. So you're here and I'm here, and this is what we're going to do this morning in John chapter 19. I'm going to read a much larger passage than I'm going to preach, so don't panic when I tell you I'm going to read most of this chapter. We're going to start in 17, and we're going to go all the way to 42, and I'd like to invite you to stand with me. I'm going to read John chapter 19, 17 to 42. You follow along, please. And he, bearing his cross, talking about Jesus, of course, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Then the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Now, there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. After this, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, Jesus said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear 
and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified. And his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. We'll stop there, and I'd invite you to pray with me, please. Father, how amazing is your sacrifice. When we come to this and other passages that show your death, your suffering for us, it is amazing to comprehend, amazing that you, out of love for us, you, in order to bring glory to yourself and salvation to us, endured the cross. Lord, we thank you. Lord, we ask for your help as we approach what is probably a familiar passage to many people in this room. We ask that you will give us a fresh glimpse of you and your power and your glory and your salvation. Holy Spirit, would you strengthen my mind and my voice that I would be able to teach clearly what you have for us today. This is your word. It will accomplish what you want it to, and I pray that it would do that in each one here today, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us pliable, soft hearts, eager to obey, eager to serve you out of love for you because of the amazing love that you have shown for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. From that larger portion describing the crucifixion in John's gospel, we're going to hone in on three verses. And from those three verses, we're really going to hone in on one verse. And from there, we're going to go really just to one phrase. In some ways, this is more of a devotional sermon or a, a meditation this morning. But we're going to begin a little bit of verse by verse in verse 28 of this chapter. And there it says, After this, Jesus, knowing all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. When it says that Jesus knew everything was accomplished, he had not died yet, not quite everything was accomplished, but everything that his father had given him on earth to do was finished. What had just happened? Because we see after this, well, Something came before that. As we look at the different gospel accounts, there were three hours of darkness in which the father, as we sang a few minutes ago, turned his face away. 
as the cup of wrath of our sin, what we deserved was poured out on Jesus in that three hours. Salvation was accomplished. Everything that needed to happen, everything Jesus had to do in order to obey and pursue his Father's will was accomplished. And that's what he means. He says, knowing that these things are done, he then said, I thirst. Isn't that a strange thing for him to say? He has been beaten. He has had his beard plucked out. He's had a crown of thorns pressed down. He's had to carry his cross. He's been abused in so many ways, tortured really. And yet he says, I thirst. Why would he say that? Because what he's about to say next is important. I don't know how familiar you are with crucifixion, but the person being tortured on that cross is dying of suffocation. There is blood loss. There are lots of other things going on in Jesus' case. But when he died, physically, humanly speaking, he suffocated. Because once you're on that cross, you have to pull yourself up in order to breathe. Your lungs, your diaphragm, all those muscles and organs can't work properly because of the position that you're in. So his lips would have been parched. His tongue, we read in the Old Testament, was probably stuck to the roof of his mouth. He couldn't talk. He certainly couldn't have been heard. And so, yes, I'm sure he was thirsty, but that's not why he said that. He said it so that he could say what he needed to say next. When he says, I thirst, he was fulfilling a messianic psalm. Psalm 22 says, my tongue clings to my jaws. So he wanted to be able to say what was coming. And there's imagery here. We're not going to get into it deeply today, but there's Passover imagery here. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so we have that messianic psalm, Psalm 22, and then we have hyssop. And those of you who are the ladies who've been in that study of the seven feasts, hyssop, I hope, is ringing a bell a little bit. Hyssop if you will, was a paintbrush used to paint the door for the Passover in Exodus. Do you remember? So it was a reed, and they used it like a sponge, so they dipped it in this dilute wine, cheap wine, vinegar, that's what it's described, dipped that in and lifted it to his mouth so he could get enough liquid in order to speak. Verse 30, So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up the spirit. If you've read the gospel accounts, if you've read them recently or, or you remember, earlier he had said no to what they offered him. Because early on, it's recorded in Mark 15, they offered him a pain-numbing drink, more like a narcotic, something to take the pain away. And he refused. He bore the full wrath. He bore the pain for you and for me without any kind of medicine or, or alcohol to take that away. But now there was a different reason. He needed to be able to say what he was going to say in the loudest, clearest voice possible. And after he had said it, John says, bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. That was voluntary. Jesus was fully God and fully man. And as such, he couldn't die like a normal person he would have to give up his spirit. And that's what he said he would do. He had said earlier in John's gospel, back in chapter 10, that no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. He was doing this voluntarily. He was doing this willfully. 
and he had done everything that the father gave him to do, and he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. If you look closely, and if you underline or mark in your Bible, you may want to circle these words, mark them some way. Verse 28, accomplished. Later in verse 28, fulfilled. Same root word. And then verse 30, it is finished. Accomplished, fulfilled, finished. We're not reading it in Greek, so they're all different words in English. But there's one word that is a Greek word that covers all of those. And it looks like this. Can you read that? It is tetelestai. Most of us don't read it that way. Most of us read it this way in English. Listen, regular letters. There you go. You say, do I need to know that for the test? No. You don't have to remember that word, but I think if you remember that word, it's going to be very meaningful to you as we talk through this. Tetelestai is one Greek word that we have translated in verse 30 as three English words, it is finished. So if you like equations, tetelestai equals it is finished. I'll give you another one in a few minutes. The main point I want you to get today is that Jesus paid our debt of sin in full. That's the other meaning. I'll go ahead and tell you now. It is finished also means paid in full. That's the idea. Jesus paid our debt of sin. I had a debt of sin. You had a debt of sin. He paid it in full on the cross. That's what I want you to remember from our time together this morning. Now, when he said, it is finished, if you're like me, you're wondering, what is finished? This is not an exhaustive list, but these are the ones that I'm going to attempt to address today. The sacrifices, the Old Testament sacrificial system was finished. Salvation, as we understand it, it was finished. It was accomplished. Redemption, buying us out of the slave market of sin, accomplished. Mission completion. Forgiveness, the forgiveness of our sins, finished. Done. John MacArthur said that when Jesus said those words, he meant that the entire work of redemption had been brought to completion. It's done. Now, if you've read the Old Testament, you've seen the book of Leviticus, for example, you understand that there was a very complicated system of animal sacrifice that was required. And the priests had to do this, and this type of sin or that type of impurity required this, and if you couldn't afford, then there was this other option. And year-round, day after day, sacrifice after sacrifice. Sin, we should agree on what sin is if we're going to talk about sin and forgiveness. Sin is breaking God's law. The easiest example of that is the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not. When we do that, we're breaking God's law. We're going against his standards, and we sin. And there's a problem there. Because sin separates us from God. Go all the way back in your mind to the Garden of Eden, beginning of Genesis. Adam and Eve got to walk with God in the cool of the day. They had fellowship with him, unbroken. And then the serpent tempted Eve and she ate that fruit and broke that rule, and she gave it to Adam, and he, full knowing, sinned, and sin entered the world. And spiritual death resulted, and separation from God resulted. So sin is being separated from God. And in order to be reconciled to God, there had to be the shedding of blood. So beginning right there in Genesis... God slew some animals to make skins to cover Adam and Eve. 
And then when we get to the book of Leviticus, Exodus, Leviticus, in there, we have various sacrifices because to cover sin, and I'm using that word on purpose, cover sin, there had to be the shedding of blood. An animal, an animal's blood took the place of my blood that should have been shed for that sin. Does that make sense? That's important to understand that. The people of the Old Testament world had to bring their animals, their sheep, their goats, their turtle doves, birds, in order to have a sacrifice for sin. And when they did that, God forgave their sin. He overlooked their sin because that blood covered the sin. Again, you ladies who just went through that study talked about the Day of Atonement. The high priest, once a year, would come in and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant. And that covered, it showed that there was blood covering between God above and those tablets of stone, the, the law inside. And that was the covering. It was to prevent God's wrath from being poured out from us on us for breaking his law. Jesus, of course, was the final sacrifice for sin. He is the ultimate lamb who would take away the sin of the world. And that's all sin of all time, past, present, and future. This word, tetelestai, you may have never heard that until I said it a few minutes ago. But it was a common word back in the Roman Empire, speaking Greek. This word is the word that a servant would use when his master gave him something to do, and he did it, and he came back and said, I'm finished, he would say tetelestai. It was used in the art world. An artist who's painting maybe a, a beautiful landscape and gets it all finished, last brush stroke, steps back, there's nothing I need to change, nothing I need to add, nothing I need to correct. Tetelestai, it's finished. It can't be improved. Same thing, somebody writing a book, an author, wouldn't have been pages, it wouldn't be a book like we think of, but a scroll. Write the end of that scroll, get to the end, put the last punctuation on, everything's finished. Tetelestai, it's done. The story is written. And in many ways, the death of Jesus that we're talking about this morning, it completes the picture. It finishes the story of redemption. A story that God had been writing for centuries. Someone said, because of the cross, we understand the ceremonies and prophecies in the Old Testament. So it finishes the story. It tells us the rest of the story. A little bit closer to the idea of sacrifice. When a priest saw a lamb, a ram, a goat, that didn't have any blemish, didn't have any spot, it looked, by all accounts, perfect, then he would say, tetelestai. It is finished. It is good. It is right. It is complete. Now, you may not be able to relate to any of those, so maybe young people in the room as well. Do you ever do puzzles, jigsaw puzzles? Nobody does any puzzles. Okay, thank you. The two of you who does do puzzles, good. You've done a puzzle at some point in your life. You've seen someone. You know someone who's done a puzzle. You have all these puzzle pieces. Let's say it's a thousand-piece puzzle, and you work on that thing, and you work on that thing, and maybe the whole family comes around, and you finish the puzzle. You get to that last piece. There's a great deal of satisfaction in putting that last, if you had the last piece. Some of you are smiling. You ever done that? You get to the end and it's not there. But imagine with me, thousand piece puzzle, all the pieces are there and you put in that last piece. To Tetelestai, it is finished, it's done, it's complete. There are no blanks, there are no missing pieces. It all fits together perfectly. That's the picture, that's the word. 
But there's an even more significant definition for our study this morning. And that is the way a merchant would have used tetelestai. Because, as I mentioned a minute ago, it means paid in full. If you owed a debt and paid it, paid in full. There is no longer any reason for that person you owed the money to to come after you. It's paid in full. It's done. It's over. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life in our place because we couldn't do that. And then he died on our behalf as our substitute. He died to pay the penalty for our sin. He died in our place on the cross to pay that debt for us and to pay it in full. Those Old Testament sacrifices, those animals that were slaughtered, they covered for that sin. The term is atone. They atoned for that sin. But they did not take it away. John one twenty nine says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He takes it away. Difference of covered versus takes away. Understand the difference. The Old Testament, they were obedient. And by faith, they were declared righteous. They were forgiven. It's not that they didn't have forgiveness, but it wasn't removed. The penalty of sin could not be fully paid. The debt they owed could not be fully removed until Jesus died. Until the cross happened, it could not be removed. It was merely covered. So covered versus taken away. Get that in your mind. The idea that the Lamb of God will be the one who takes away the sin of the world in John 1.29. So how did he do it? How does the Lamb of God take away the sin of the world? By taking our sin on himself during those three hours when the wrath of God was poured out on him. The Father turned away from him. He was separated. One of the other Gospels says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what was happening. The punishment that we deserve for our sin was poured out by God the Father on his Son instead of us. So how did he take away the sin of the world? By wiping away our record of sin. Someone put it this way. When Jesus uttered those words, he was declaring the debt owed to his father was wiped away completely and forever. Jesus eliminated the debt owed by mankind, which was the debt of sin. Let's look at an Old Testament parallel. This is Isaiah 43, 25. You don't have to turn there unless you want to. Isaiah 43, 25 says, I, so Jehovah's speaking, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Blots out, same idea, wipes them out. Um, Strong defines that word this way, to wipe off, to wipe away, to obliterate, to erase, to wipe out. You got the point? like erasing a whiteboard. It's all gone. It's completely gone. And that verbiage was used by Paul in Colossians 2. So if you have that marked, go ahead and move over to Colossians 2 now. The idea is wiping away the ink from the surface of a document, a parchment. This is Colossians 2, verses 13 to 15. Let me read these three verses, and then we'll work through them almost verse by verse, several of these phrases. Colossians 2, 13, and you, 
He's writing the Colossians, so he's writing to believers. Being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. So back when you were unsaved, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. What's he talking about? This section of Colossians is amazing, but it's not always easy to grab on the first time through. He describes them as having been dead. There are lots of places we could go in the Bible, New Testament, Romans in particular, that would equate death and sin. They go together. Romans 5.12 is one of those. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, talking about Adam, and death through sin, so sin, death, sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. So sin entered the world through Adam, and it spread to everybody. It spreads like a disease. spreads like wildfire. Death and sin go together. Romans 6.23 is probably more familiar to you. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So sin and death, he says, you were dead. And the, the rest of verse 13 is the first of some parallel phrases, having forgiven you all trespasses. It would help us to know what a trespass is. You've seen signs that say no trespassing, right? What's that telling me? What can't I do? Don't go there. Don't cross that line. So there's a line somewhere. Imagine it's this, this microphone cable that's in front of me. It says no trespassing. Here's the line. What did I just do? I sinned. Specifically, I trespassed. I'm trespassing. I can be evicted. I can be uh, convicted. There we go. Of trespassing. That's the idea. It's intentional. I know where the boundary is, and I'm going to go over it. It's rebellious sin. There is sin that we can do that I didn't even know that was a sin yet. This is sin I know, and I'm doing it. That's trespass. Deliberate and willful sin. Defiance against God's law. But what does it say? Having, having forgiven you all trespasses. How many of the trespasses? All of the trespasses. So even your deliberate sin, he has forgiven all of it. Not some of it, not most of it, not all but that one thing, all of it. Very good news. It's not finished. Verse 14, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. Handwriting of requirements, it's a business term. It's like an official notice that I am going into debt and I'm signing it. I used to work in a bank. So I, I did loans, and we had closing documents. And you're signing your life away. You're signing that I owe this money. I have to pay this money. I'm legally bound to repay this money. And that's what this is. It's like there's this piece of paper, and it has your sin debt on it. And you've signed the bottom saying, I owe this. It's mine. That's the type of document. a debt written in the debtor's own handwriting. But what did he do with it? I'm still in verse 14. He wiped it out. Now, in that time when Paul was writing to the church at Colossae, first century, it was common to have these written documents that represent a debt, and normally what you would do, once the debt is paid, you would cross it out. You'd put an X through it. It's done. And that was 
that was legal. That was fine. If it was agreed by both parties and it was crossed out, then that was good enough. That wasn't good enough for Paul to describe this. He's saying, wipe it out. Modern terms think pencil and eraser. Back then, my understanding is that in order to get ink off parchment or velum, you might have to take a little knife and scrape it off. But however it was removed, it was removed. It was wiped out. It was erased. Gone. Canceled. Someone said, God has totally erased our certificate of indebtedness and made our forgiveness complete. I mentioned working in a bank. Had to work with car titles from time to time. How many of you have sold a vehicle before? Okay, many of you. At some point, you've probably paid off a vehicle as well. And if you're buying a private party vehicle, you want to see something on that title. Actually, you don't want to see something on that title, right? You're looking to see, is there a lien or more than one lien? Usually just one lien on that vehicle. Does this person owe money to the bank or to the credit union or, or to the car dealership or whatever? You want to see, is there a lien? And there are forms, and we used to have to deal with MVR4 and MVR8 and these other things that had to be notarized to prove that a lien had been satisfied. So there's a loan. I owe somebody money for this vehicle. I make my last payment, and I want to see a clean title that has no lien. And the paperwork that goes that way is a lien satisfaction. That's a modern illustration of this documentation to say that I don't owe anything anymore. Continuing in verse 14. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. This is another metaphor. We're describing the forgiveness that Jesus has offered to those who were dead. That's you, that's me. Those who were dead are now alive because he has taken care of our sin issue. When it says nailed it to the cross, when someone was crucified, generally his crimes were written up on a little plaque, a little sign. In fact, sometimes he had to carry it through the streets. Jesus may have had to do that. But do you remember there was something written on the cross above Jesus that was supposed to be his crime? You remember what it said? King of the Jews. If you have your finger over in Matthew, uh, John, you can look at it. John 19, 19. I read it earlier. Now, Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. So you would have the name of the person, maybe where he's from to identify who it is, and what he did wrong. And did Pilate know anything that Jesus had done wrong? No. Didn't get into that part of the story today, but Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. The only thing he could come up with, they were accusing him of being disloyal to Caesar, and that he was making himself a king. And a threat that way. He was, he was guilty of insubordination. He, he's guilty of trying to rebel. So he put, this is Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Literally, please understand, I'm not saying that anything different was on that cross. Literally, that is the sign that was on the cross. That's all I can come up with. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Figuratively, though, symbolically, what Paul is saying is that there was something else on the cross. And you know what it was? It was your list of sins, and it was your list of sins, and it was my list of sins. That certificate of indebtedness we're talking about, 
that car title, it still shows there's a lien. That's what's up there. That's what's nailed to his cross, our list of sins. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Our sins were put to his account. Did he commit any of those sins? No. He never committed even one. But every sin I've ever committed or will commit during my life, and all of you, all of the sins you have committed or will commit, all of those were paid for on the cross. All of them. So the next time we sing, it is well with my soul, as we did a couple weeks ago, I hope this stanza will mean even more to you. My sin, oh, the bliss, the happiness, the greatness of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Is that how we usually sing that song? No. That should be our heart cry, that he has forgiven all of my transgression. He's blotted it out. He's erased it. He's nailed it to his cross and borne the shame in my place that I would have forgiveness. And we'll go ahead and touch on verse 15 there. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Disarmed literally means to strip. So if you can imagine a defeated king or general would have his special clothing, his crown or his helmet, and that was removed. Take that away and make him parade in a tunic or even naked. At the back of the parade, we're celebrating our victory over this other foreign leader. So it's a victory parade. And they're marching this person through the streets. Now, who is being marched through the streets here? Principalities and powers. What does that mean? Demons. The powers of hell, Satan and his demons, are defeated by the cross. When he, Jesus, died on the cross for your sin and my sin, he defeated the powers of hell. We've talked in Revelation recently. He defeated death. He defeated hell. He defeated sin. He did all of that when he died on the cross. And he did all that for you and he did all that for me. Triumphing over them by the cross. Literally leading them in a triumphal procession. His victory on the cross means our victory over sin. He has defeated death, he has defeated hell, he has defeated sin, and we have victory in him, Romans chapter 8. What is my point this morning? Jesus paid our debt of sin in full. And I'm going to try to illustrate that now as we close with something visual. So unless you're more visual learners, I hope this will help. We have a sin nature when we're born. I'm not saying we don't. But I also believe that there comes a time, and it's early on in our lives, where we commit that first sin, right? So we start off, so to speak, imagine a whiteboard, imagine a blank slate, and then you commit that first sin. Then you commit that second sin. And I don't know exactly how old I was. I'm not saying this is the first sin I committed, but I can remember 
before I ever went to school, that I lied, specifically to my mother, specifically about brushing my teeth when I hadn't. All right, and y'all are smiling and laughing a little bit, and that's fine. That's silly, isn't it? But it's still a choice that I made to sin. And the next one I remember was at nursery school. I don't remember whether it was a pair of scissors or a crayon, but it was something that they had there for us to use at school, and I didn't have it at home, and I thought I really needed it, so I just stole it and brought it home. That's really foolish. But it was a sin, and it was something I chose to do. And you, at some point in your life, have all sinned. And probably it was early when you were young, like, like it was for me. So there's a third sin. And then there are lots and lots and lots of sins. If we continued keeping this record, it would fill up the page. And it would do more than that. It would spill over, right? So imagine all the sins that you have committed to this point. All the committed sins that you will commit between now and the time that Jesus raptures his church or we die. And that is a lot of sin. So we have a problem, right? The problem is our sin. The sin separates us from God. And if nothing is done about it, that sin is going to separate us from God forever. I was a sinner. I had committed and have committed many, many sins. Now we talked earlier about in the Garden of Eden, from then on, God established that there would have to be the shedding of blood to cover sin. And we call that atonement. You can read more about what I'm about to say in Hebrews 9 and 10, that there was a covering. There was a covering of sin. But if you look up there, you can still see the sin. It's still there. It's forgiven. This is the process God established. It's forgiven, but it's still there. Nothing's been done to to eradicate it yet. The blood of an animal that was shed in the place of the blood of a human, God saw it. He overlooked that sin. He forgave that sin, but it's only a covering. We could say that the sin covered or that it crossed out, but there's also a sense in which it's still there. Hebrews 10 tells us the blood of bulls and goats was not enough. It was not sufficient, but the blood of Jesus Christ is. The blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to cleanse us from all sin. So when Jesus said to Telestai, when he said it is finished, when he said it is paid in full, we can have all of our sin debt taken away permanently. Isaiah said, blotted out. Colossians said, wiped out. And that he took our sin out of the way, nailing it to his cross. So now instead of a blood atonement, a covering, we can imagine that it is stamped, paid in full. But not just that, not just stamped, paid in full, but that it is actually erased, that it all goes away. And all that is left is the paid in full. It's not that those sins didn't happen, but that it's Jesus, God, chooses not to remember those sins against us. And that his death on the cross, his atoning sacrifice was perfect, it was complete, and it is finished. So we can take the paid in full away and imagine, because of Jesus Christ, if I am in Christ, it's as if there's a blank slate. He declares that we are righteous. We're not. He declares us to be forgiven, and we are, and that is very good news. Does that describe you today? Have you found the solution to your sin problem? Because there's only one, and that is Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Sin separates us from God, 
And if it is not dealt with by God in Christ, it will separate us from him forever in hell. Now, some of you might be thinking, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I did in my past. And you're right, I don't. But God does. And he said it is finished. He said it's done. He said it is forgiven. If you will believe in me by faith, I will take care of your sin problem. I will address it. I will take care of it. God knew the sin that you and I would commit. And he sent Jesus, his son, to die on the cross so that he could justly forgive our sin. So what do you have to do? Cry out to him. Believe in him. Ask him to forgive you. And he will. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Believer, are you living in the reality of that forgiveness? You're forgiven. Don't let Satan or your own flesh beat you up about that sin because God says it's forgiven. Jesus said it is finished, it's done, it's complete, it is paid in full. Who are you to disagree with them? All of that sin debt has been paid in full, all of your sin. And because of that, we're supposed to consider ourselves dead to sin. That's Romans chapter 6. Unfortunately, we will still sin. That's Romans chapter 7. But Romans chapter 8, some of you are smiling. You know where I'm going. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Do you believe that this morning? You say, but I, I don't care what you did. God doesn't care what you did but I was already saved and I said, God has forgiven all of your sin in Christ. It is finished. It is done. It is paid in full. But I don't feel saved. Stop listening to yourself and listen to God. He did it. It is done. It is accomplished. It is paid in full. There is no debt you owe for past sin, present sin, future sin. It's done. It's gone. And your slate is wiped clean. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Please don't leave this place today without knowing that God has dealt with your sin and that he no longer holds it against you. Your debt is paid in full. All of your sin is forgiven in Christ. You can be washed clean in the blood of the Lamb. Is there anyone here this morning who isn't sure? You don't know that your sins are forgiven. You can. We've just described it. But if you don't know that and you're burdened for your soul, I would be glad to pray with you. Would you make eye contact with me or lift your hand and put it back down? Is there any believer here who would say, the Holy Spirit's working on me this morning because I have felt defeated, I've been living defeated by sin. There's a lot more we can talk about 
from the Bible about how we are set free from sin. But if you're burdened about your sin this morning, as a believer, you're confessing it and forsaking it again and claiming the promise that it's forgiven and you'd like me to remember you in prayer, same thing. Simply make eye contact with me, look back down. Raise your hand, put it back down. Father, may we live in light of this truth, this amazing truth, that it is finished, that you've done all the work. There's nothing more for us to do because there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. It is only your finished work. You've done it, Lord. And we thank you. There's nothing we possibly could have done to save ourselves, and yet you've done it in a way that cost you much and cost us nothing. So may that be real to us this morning. May we love you and serve you out of gratitude for the great salvation that you have offered to us. May that be the heart cry of every person here, every person listening or watching. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.